So this week, uh, so uh, we finished up our study in Colossians last week, and knowing that I was going to be away from you guys for a few weeks, I didn't want to start something and then have to be away and let it go on pause. So the next couple of weeks are going to be, you know, kind of a one-offs. And so this week I was thinking about this question. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the tongue. Do you remember? And I had watched a TED Talk. How many of you guys watch TED Talks? They're pretty, they're, some of them are pretty awesome. Some of them, but some are pretty awesome. And I had watched this one as this lady talked about language. And I, and I was listening to her and, I, and, and basically was this, was she said that your mind thinks and causes your body to react and it causes your vocal cords to vibrate in such a way and that in combination with the position of your mouth, your tongue, and the air passing through it creates a vibration in the air that travels across space into the ear of the listener and it vibrates the eardrum and that vibration is translated by the receiver's mind into a language in which they understand. And then I thought about, she didn't mention it, maybe I need to do a TED Talk, and I'll take her one step further. I thought to myself that on any given Sunday, yes, my brain thinks, my vocal cords vibrate, my mouth and my breath create a volume that goes to your ears here, but through this microphone, it goes to that receiver, through that board, through that computer, and is broadcast around the world to anyone that's listening to it. And anyone who can speak the English language and Texan can understand the words that are coming out of my mouth. <laughs> levels, levels. Do you appreciate the miraculousness of language? And I want you to know that pushed me down into a rabbit hole. Because sometimes as human beings, we get so hung up in where we're going, we don't take a pause to think about where we are and what we have. Something as natural as language. The miraculousness of God's design that you and I can communicate. And there's not just one language but thousands of languages. Ladies and gentlemen, we serve an awesome God. <laughs> and, and when we talk about the quest for greatness, what makes humanity great? Where does our greatness come from? Can we even use that word? As Christians, you feel a little uncomfortable just hearing that. If I tell you I am a great person, you go, well, Jimmy's getting a little full of himself. Maybe. But I would say to you this, is that every single one of us have a quest for greatness. What is my value and where does it lie? What difference do I make? And so it took me to Psalms chapter 8. It's a short psalm like Josh warned you. It's not one of the long ones. It's a shorty. But I just want you to know, I can shake, take a short conversation and write it for hours. 
So, um, okay, hold on a second. Miss Tanya, we're going to need to recue there, if we may. There we go. And so here's my opening question. What are some of life's most asked questions? And this is the class participation portion of the service today. What are some of the most asked questions of life? What was that? Why am I here? What's for dinner? That's the one that freezes everyone in their tracks. And always come, at least one person in the conversation goes, ugh. What else? I heard one over here. Is Whataburger busy in Greenville? Always. Over here. What's that? How are you? That's a good one. Yeah. How about this one? What am I going to do when I grow up? Do you remember that question? Yeah. Do I go to college? That's a good question. How about this? Do I want to get married? That's a good question. And then this week I had two premarital counseling. counseling. (laughs) Wow, okay. Freudian slip maybe? I don't know. Two premarital counseling sessions. And one of the questions that I asked them was this. So what about kids? It's a big question. We ask a lot of questions in life, and it's good. Questions are important. They have a place. Today, I want to discuss two questions. What is life's most important question? Now, if you ask 10 people, my friend, I think you'll get at least six different answers. What is life's most important question? Well, I believe it's simply this. Who is Jesus Christ? That is, in my humble opinion, and the opinion of people much smarter than I, the question of life. So let's look. Free stuff. I love it. Who do the world religions say Jesus Christ is? Well, our friends in Islam say that Jesus was born of a virgin. He should be revered. He was a prophet. He did ascend into heaven and will come again. The Muslims believe that Jesus is coming, but he'll be a Muslim. It sounded good, kind of. Judaism says Jesus was Mary's son. He was respected. He was a miracle worker, and he was crucified on the cross. Hinduism says that Jesus was a holy man and a wise teacher, a model of perfection as, per, as it pertained to how he treated the poor and the needy. He was a perfect man so much as he treated those in need. He is a God, one of some 33 million When you get to talking with Hindus about gods, you got a long talk. Our friends, the Buddhists say that Jesus was an enlightened man and a wise teacher, but he's not divine. The Dalai Lama stated this, Jesus Christ also lived previous lives and added that, so you see, he reached a high state either as an enlightened person through Buddhism Or something like that. that. Or something like that. Okay. 
Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And we see that question in Matthew, the 16th chapter. But what about you, Peter, he asked, who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was this was not revealed to you by the flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There's a promise to the answer of who do you say that I am. My friends, if you say that Jesus is God's one and only Son and your Savior, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. The challenge is, not everyone answers that question in this manner. And I would pose to you today, who do you say that Jesus is? Now understand this. Who you say he is has no bearing on who he is. It's simply a reflection on who I am and on where I'm going. What is life's second most important question? Well, we get down to this. Of what importance is man? Who am I? What am I here for? And of what value am I? It's a great question. We all ask this existential question at times in our lives. You do it when you're about 18 or 19. You do it when you're about 40. You know what the midlife crisis is? Who am I and what am I doing here and what difference am I making? That's what the midlife crisis is. Let's look. Charles Darwin prostituted. Needs to say my mind's, you know, divided. Three channels running high and hot. Postulated that man is merely a highly developed animal. You started at the bottom and now you're here. My friends, I want you to know this. I do not have enough faith to believe in the theory of evolution. It takes too much, too long. I just can't do it. Mankind did not evolve from the lower forms of life, but was created directly by God in God's image. Genesis says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. And so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. My friends, you didn't accidentally climb out of the soup. God created mankind in his image. The theory of evolution is a direct antithesis of biblical truth. Most of humanity would rather have crawled out of the gutter 
then came out of the kingdom's presence. Do you know why? Because we can take pride at how far we drag ourselves, but we have to be humbled by where we came from. Sigmund Freud says his concept was this. We're just all underdeveloped children. You know, it's your mom's fault. Karl Marx stated that man is basically an economic factor in the world. Do you know why communism and Marxism doesn't work? Well, there's one reason. Because in Marxism, your only value is based on what you add to the collective or what you cost the collective. And ladies and gentlemen, if we're not careful, our world tells us that same thing today. Are you adding more than you cost? Listen, that's not the way to view life and our value. Psalms chapter 8 presents God's answer to the riddle of mankind's question, what is man? Let's look. Verse 1, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You, you who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. I'm trying not to break into, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. <clears throat> oh, Lord, we praise your name. Oh, Lord, we magnify your name, Prince of Peace, mighty God. Three channels. It's entertaining and exhausting. God created. Many call this an envelope psalm because it starts in the same way that it ends and the truth is wrapped up in between them. The psalm goes on an eternal cycle of emphasis on the glorious excellence of God. My friends, the glory of God is never diminished and never ending. The only limit to the glory of God is not its existence, but our understanding and appreciation of it. When I was a child, I behaved and acted as a child, but when I became mature, what, I put away childish things. I began to see things and understand things. When my mother died at the age of 11, in my, at my age 11, my feelings, my misunderstandings, my interpretations toward her were justified, but they were out of a lack of understanding. I didn't understand what being a widow at 27 with two small children meant. But when I became mature, I began to understand that one, life's hard, and sometimes it's real hard, and every now and then it's real, real hard, like that gorilla who slings the Samsonite. And it was only as I matured could I see my mother through a different lens. Did my mother make mistakes? Yes, she did. But I also now understand the struggle in which she was trying to live and to love and to lead. And who am I to judge a mile that I've never walked? A.W. Pink says this, happy the soul that has been awed by the view of God's majesty. 
our galaxy, the Milky Way, is 100,000 light years across. 100,000 light years across. I never heard the word light year until I watched Star Trek. A light year is six trillion miles. One light year is still less than our national debt. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. And our 100,000 light year wide galaxy contains between 100 and 400 billion stars. And this is just a galaxy, not the. Our author, King David, when he was a child, Shepherd David, would have spent countless hours out in the pastures and the fields and the highways with the flock both day and night. And can you imagine what God's creation looked like to David before we created light pollution? Most nights, the only light David had was the light that God had created from his heavens above. And I have to imagine that his timeless view of God's handiwork would have spurred questions, thoughts, and feelings. When I was swimming around in this message, I was thinking in my mind, what is the earliest recollection that I have of looking into God's heavens and feeling the awe, inspiration of it? And the, the earliest I remember distinctly was the early 80s at Philmont Scout Ranch in northwest New Mexico. I was sitting on a rock looking into the stars, listening to Sticks Paradise Theater. And I want you to know, as a, I don't know, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, I was all inspired Now, I did not yet know the God of that creation. But that creation. was awe-inspiring. The earliest recollection in my life that I felt so very small. And I thought about how it must have been for David night after night as he looked into this. If God's celestial workmanship doesn't awe you, these photographs are from the Webb Telescope. If his workmanship doesn't inspire you, you're just not looking. This morning as I drove in and I shaded my eyes from the sun in the east and I looked to the west and there was God's moon still visible to me, my friends, awe-inspiring. Verse 2, from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your enemies to do away with the enemy and the revengeful. And I thought to myself, David, what are you talking about here? 
What can we glean from this? David, you're a shepherd boy. What, what, help me here. Two things. One, have you ever, now, mm, trying to think how to tread lightly through these bear traps. For centuries, the primary method for early nutrition for a child was to nurse from their mother. The process by which a child nurses is the perfect execution of what we know as the boiling vacuum. Robert Boyle was a 16th century chemist, philosopher, and theological writer who invented the law of vacuum. So David, how is it that a newborn baby first natural instinct is to perform this law that we didn't even know what it was or what to name it until the 16th century. But babies were doing it perfectly from the get because God gave it to them. God didn't have to teach them the theory of vacuum. God gave it to them. They were designed to do that. And then if we want to flip it, David's writings kind of prove to be a foreshadowing. He talks about this most simple, beautiful act of a child seeking sustenance in a manner in which we didn't really comprehend until the 16th century. But then he talks about children in a different way. Matthew 21 gives us the, the story. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were selling and buying in the temple courts. And he turned over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Verse 15, and when the chief priests and experts of the law saw these wonderful things he did and heard the children crying out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. They became indignant and said to him, do you hear what they, the children, are saying? These religious, pompous, arrogant people Look to Jesus and go, do you hear what they're saying about you? Doesn't that bother you? Jesus said to them, yeah, I hear it. Have you never read out of the mouths of children and nursing infants, you have prepared praise for yourself? Psalm 8, God's power and provision and praise aren't limited to the grandiose. It can also be found in the unassuming like the hearts and the words of children. Amen. God often points us to the example of children. 
children understand what it means to love. Children understand what it means to trust. Children understand what it is to share. God's fingerprint is never more evident than in the heart and the mouth and the actions of children. And part of the challenge that you and I face is, guess what? We grow up. But David was saying that God has put his fingerprint in the life of and the example of children. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which have been set into place, what is man that you think of him? Who am I? And the son of man that you concerned about him. David had no concept of light years. He had never seen Star Trek. He had no concept of a thing called the Milky Way. Yet he was humbled by what he saw and the creator who created it. And his humbleness was inclusive of the fact that that same God knew him and loved him. On that summer evening as I sat on that rock in northwest New Mexico and I looked into those heavens, my friends, I was all inspired. But the disconnect was this. I didn't know the God who created it and I had not yet learned that that same God knew me and loved me. Now, my little Appalachian Pentecostal grandma tried to teach me, but just like Johnny Cash said, Mama tried, Mama tried. How much more should we be humbled and appreciative given what we know? We know light years, we know galaxies, we know Milky Ways, and guess what? We know Jesus, we have God's Word, and we have God's Holy Spirit indwelling us. My friends, how much more awe-inspired should we be than this little shepherd boy who sat on a hill out under God's creation? The awe of God should just blow you away when you take time to ponder on it. David, uh, Jeff, you did a great job this morning. It takes time. It takes consideration. It takes ponderance. When that lady was talking about the gift of language and I sat there and I pondered the fact of what has to take place for language to take place, what a miraculous God we serve. When I lay inside an MRI, MRI tube and a magnet spins around me and it can see every part of me, what a miraculous God we serve. When a man-driven robot goes in and takes out things that don't need to be there, what a God we serve. Why? Because he gave us the equipment, and guess what? He gave us the man. God's not robbed. What a God we serve. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, 
the world and all who live in it. What belongs to God? Everything. Do you know what belongs to you? Nothing. Say nothing with me. Now, I need you to say it with a little attitude like I do. Nothing. Nothing. Well, but Jimmy, I have, I, I own my car. Listen, I've got three pink slips in the safe at my house. Yeah, I actually own some cars. Like, I do. But guess what? God calls me to glory today. Guess who owns them? Somebody else. Why? Because you're not stuffing them in my cremation urn. Wouldn't that be something? Well, we've got Jimmy. We'd like to have him cremated. And then we need these three cars. Everything belongs to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. Your spouse belongs to the Lord. Your children belong to the Lord. Your job belongs to the Lord. Your house belongs to the Lord. Your car belongs to the Lord. Every dime that you have belongs to the Lord. It all belongs to the Lord. The Bible even says that the very breath that you draw <sighs> belongs to the Lord. Hmm. Yet God gives it to you for your management, for your enjoyment. Are you kidding me? My dad used to not even give me his tools, much less his world. My parents wouldn't give me their car, much less their world. You know someone right now that there's something you wouldn't give them. You know there is. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't believe I'm true, as soon as we're done, all of you with kids, let them drive home. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Walking, hey, Junior, here you go. And God grows us. God spoke everything into existence except man. If you read the Genesis account, he spoke light into existence. He spoke water into existence. He spoke land into existence and animals and on and on and on. Fiat, he spoke it. But when it came to man, he formed us. He spoke life into everything. Every bird, every fish, every cow, every giraffe, every duck-billed platypus. God spoke life into them except man no when it came to man he <sighs> he said it is good about the stars and the sun and the dirt and the water and the ducks and the pigeons and the scorpions I don't know why God would say good but he did and the snakes and the spiders, all those things. He says, it is good. But when he created man, he said, it is very good. Why? Words matter, ladies and gentlemen. Words matter. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's very good. Mankind is the crown of God's creation. Amen? Yes. Now, come on, say amen with me. Amen. See, as Christians, you're going, I don't think I, I you know, I, I'm supposed to be humble. 
I'm humble. Listen to me. You can be humbly accurate. You are the crown of God's creation. When you look in our world, my goodness, what a God we serve. Go to the World Aquarium. What? Watch Discovery Channel. What? But you... Point your finger at yourself and say, me, me, and the crown of God's creation. God created us perfect, eternal, with authority and dominion over creation. God created Adam and Eve perfect. They were the crown of his creation. But sin. Its penalty and presence and power has robbed us of our promised position. Do you know why we don't experience heaven? Because we're not there yet. Because the presence of sin, the power of sin, and the penalty of sin touches all of our lives. God designed us to live in perfect love and fellowship with him and with each other. But sin has robbed us of that. And it continues to rob us to this day. But Jesus. But Jesus. He has produced our hope for redemption. Now we live each day receiving a foretaste of what will be. I love that. I love that word. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Do you know what foretaste means? I'm about to tell you. Did you ever have a mama or a grandmama who'd say, baby, you want you want to lick the bowl? I grew up with seven siblings. I was the middle child. You know who didn't get to lick the bowl? Because either I got punked out by the older ones or the sympathy went to the younger ones. Hey, can I get a witness? She grew up, she knew. And then I got married, amen. And for a brief while, baby, you want to lick the bowl? Yes, I do. And then you know what happens, kids. <laughs> but then you know what? Empty nest. Every day when we seek after the Lord, we get a foretaste. We get to lick the spoon of what? What heaven's going to taste like. We're not there yet. One day heaven, but every day through his grace and his mercy and our passionate pursuit, I get to lick the spoon of what heaven tastes like. It tastes like a sun in the east and a moon in the west. Woo! But our world doesn't get it. 
They get to see it. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Mm. But just like that teenage boy sitting on that rock in northwest New Mexico, I could see it, but I didn't understand its value. I didn't understand its purpose. Mm. I didn't understand its place in my life. Verse five, yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. Who's that? That's me. You have made him rule over the works of your hands and you have put everything under his feet. All the sheep and oxen, all the animals of the field and the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Where does my value lie? Oh, it's not in where it lies. It's in who I know and who knows me. You see, my value isn't dependent upon what I, do, what I do and I don't do. My quest for greatness will never be found in what we do, but in whose we are. I'm a child of the king, baby. Undeserving, but yet a child nonetheless. My value lies in what God says that I am. My value lies in that the God and the creator of everything that I know and I do not know knows my name and loves me. My value lies in the fact that his son would come to a Calvary's cross and pass through a tomb in the garden and be rose again that I may have heaven again. One day, I will be restored and you will be restored back to the perfect birthright in which God created us. When the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and yes, even the presence of sin will be ours no more. Why are you great? Because your God is great. Don't believe what the world tells you. My friends, don't always believe what you feel because the truth is is sometimes I just don't feel that great. But Jesus, our display of his glory can be found in being made in his image that we are being saved by his mercy, that we are being sanctified. That's too good. I can't rob you of it. We are being sanctified by his mercy and that we get to share the hope that lies within us. God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. How do we glorify the Lord? Know him, love him, and make him known.
Ephesians 4 tells us this, my closing charge to us. Paul says, I, therefore a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is that, what is that calling? You're a child of the king. Walk worthy of that. We live below our standards way too often. Ladies and gentlemen, spiritually, we slumming. Worthy of the calling which you have been called. How do I do this, Paul? With humility and gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another and love. How you do this? I carry a plate of humble pie 24-7. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve the blessings of life. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Walk with your eyes on the prize with humility and grace and be about trying to maintain and protect and grow the harmony inside the family and invite people to come and see. Our world struggles for its purpose and value. Help them understand. God says you're valuable. God says you're priceless. He didn't want it to lose you. That's how much God loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Now, Father, I pray that my words would not be misconstrued. Father, my value is exceedingly and abundantly more than what the world says it is because you say so. But Father, I am a pilgrim on a journey. I am a a sinner in need of a savior. Father, everything that I am And everything that I hope to be is a gift from you. Father, I pray that we as your children would be ever mindful of that. And that we'd be very, very careful. For your word shows us what takes place when pride gives way to arrogance and arrogance to sin. Father, let us live unequivocally confident in our value based on who we know and who knows us. But let us also walk in humility and grace 
Because it's by your grace we are saved. Father, help us to live and to love as close as we can to that divine design of perfection. Until one day heaven. And each day as we get that foretaste of glory divine, may we be inspired and comforted, encouraged. And Lord, let us tell everyone who is willing to watch or to listen where our hope lies. For they too can have what only you can give. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you and having you know us. We thank you for this life and all that it affords us. We thank you for one day heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.